This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. While politicians spew shallow sound bites that describe a free American people who govern themselves by selecting their representatives, in reality, politicians from both parties maintain control by selecting particular voters. Incumbent politicians maintain thousands of election practices and bureaucratic hurdles that determine who votes and how votes are counted. Our guest today is Spencer Overton, author of Stealing Democracy, the New Politics of Voter Suppression. Overton is a professor at the George Washington University Law School, specializing in voting rights and campaign finance law. He was a commissioner on the Jimmy Carter James Baker Commission on Federal Election Reform and currently serves on the boards of Common Cause, Demos, and the Center for Responsive Politics. Spencer Overton, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for being on. How are you doing today? What's uh, what's the weather like? Things are. It's very hot here in Washington yeah. D.C., but things are things are great here. It's a wonderful Fourth of July. Oh, now great. now the rain stopped some time ago, right? Rain stopped. We we survived here. Did not need to buy, build an ark, so yeah. we made it. <laughs> Do you have any uh, picnic plans or any uh, plans for later in the day? Or just... Uh, just just a little barbecue. Oh, so very we're, good. We're enjoying the day. <laughs> very very good. good. So so uh, give us give our uh, country a grade right now. What's what's the state of our uh, electoral system today? Well, if you look at voter turnout, we're at about a D. Um, oh. We're in the bottom nineteen percent of all nations in the world in terms of voter participation, and that's in part because. Uh, we fall short of democratic norms. Uh, in most countries, the politicians don't redraw districting lines. Politicians don't administer the election. Here we've got the foxes guarding the hen house, whereas in other countries and other nations, even in a place like Iraq, a democracy that we essentially built, there's an independent commission that administers elections. So we really do fall short of, uh, of democratic norms on, on so many fronts. So, I mean, in addition to uh, voter turnout, there are very few nations in the in the world do what we do in terms of sort of the rules of the game. We t- we that, tend to change them often, don't that, we? That, that's absolutely right. Here in the United States, as you know, politicians draw the districts. You've got partisan politicians who are interested, self-interested. They draw the districts. That's not the case in other countries. Here we've got people like Catherine Harris, who was uh, chair of the Bush campaign in Florida in 2000. She administers the elections in, in a place like Florida. She's a partisan. Uh, obviously, Democrats do that in other states, and they're partisans. In other countries, we generally have independent commissions or an independent uh, chief executive officer basically administering elections, and the focus is on professionalism and including uh, different voters as opposed to uh, on uh, the this conflict of interest where the person who's running the election essentially has an interest in one candidate winning. So uh, those are some of the major, and there are a variety of other other ways we fall short. Right. Now, how do we get to this the state? Was there, was there some uh, point in time where, where there was a major shift where, where the... Uh, <laughs> the foxes started guarding the hen house? Right. Unfortunately, it's been that way for a while, and this is, you know, one of the reasons we've had some of the historical problems. You remember in the aftermath of the Civil War, 
white Democrats worked hard to exclude black Republicans. You remember back then African Americans were mostly Republicans and supported Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And because you know Democrats were white Democrats were administering the elections on the local level, they worked hard to implement literacy tests and poll taxes and other things, not just to advance white supremacy, but also in order to maintain their own political power because they knew that black Republicans would vote against kind of former Confederates, white Democrats. So this problem has gone on for a while. Indeed, with the first Congress, uh, you know, there were attempts to gerrymander, which is basically drawing lines to exclude one party or to enhance another party's power. So we've had this problem for a while. And, you know, some people say, well, it's been around and therefore, you know, that's just the way it is. There's, there's no need to change it. But, you know, I think it's really time now for Americans to stand up you know, especially with computer technology, it really makes it even easier for these partisans to manipulate district lines, to purge legitimate voters from the voting rolls, and to engage in all other sorts of mischief. So especially in light of the 2000, and I would say even 2004 elections and the, the irregularities uh, in those elections, we need to step up to the plate. And again, this is not a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. This is an American problem where voters of both parties are really excluded, are manipulated, and are prevented from expressing the will of the people. And especially in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, which essentially validated much of the uh, of the uh, redrawing of lines in Texas, right. there was some sort of nibbling around the edges in that decision in terms of uh, in some of the districts that they redrew, but that had more to do with racial um, issues, right, racial uh, bias, but it didn't really... Uh, I mean, it really upheld the the essential uh, part of it, which was when Tom DeLay and his allies redrew the lines in order to ensure a Republican majority in Texas. That's right, and I'm glad that the Supreme Court struck down one of the districts as improper racial gerrymandering. But right, right. Uh, and so that was a good thing to protect Latino voters. But all yeah. of the voters uh, were compromised in in Texas, and the court there should have gotten involved. You remember that the the real problem here, just to give you all an example, and I'm sure you know this and a lot of other people, but just to to get back to square one. Let's say I'm a Republican and I've only won my last election with 51 percent of the vote. Well, in the next round of redistricting, I change the population of my district. So I take out some Democratic voters and I add Republican voters. So in the next election, I win with 65% of the vote comfortably, not because I'm a better legislator or a better politician, but because I've changed the voters. So this is happening on a mass scale across the country with both Republicans and Democrats engaging in this activity. Give you an example in the 2000 election, Congress had only a 40% approval rating, but 98% of them returned to office. So essentially, the Supreme Court, by validating this and saying that this was okay, put a stamp of approval on this uh, manipulation, and voters aren't able to hold politicians accountable if politicians are here redrawing district district lines and splitting communities, undermining representation, and eliminating competition. And it, and while it's bad in a lot of places, uh, first of all, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Spencer Overton, and he's the author of Stealing Democracy, The New Politics of Voter Suppression. It's bad in we, we could we could talk about Ohio um, for the rest of the hour. We could talk about, in fact, I think Ohio really does serve us well as an example of the many different ways in which uh, voter uh, can voter suppression can take place. Right. But but we have a situation here in California, and it's ironic uh, that 
both parties, as in your what you just said, basically both parties get together, they carve out these districts so that none, virtually none of them are competitive. And right. there's a lot of ways to do that. And there are a couple different things going on here. On one side, you yeah. can do what they did in Texas, where Republicans basically drew the districts to enhance their own power, right? Or you have a situation like in California where both Republicans and Democrats are in cahoots with one another That's... and draw the districts to make both parties safer. That's you remember right. in this last round of redistricting in California, you had Michael Berman, who's Howard Berman's brother, yeah. and he's the mastermind of redrawing districts. And, you know, you've got someone who... Uh, he. Michael basically took out Latino voters from Howard's district so Howard would be safe. The Latino population was 45% in Howard's district before redistricting, and Michael Berman pushed it down to 31% in order to, you know, frankly keep keep Howard safe from challenge by an elect uh, a Latino challenger uh, candidate. And so it, it really is an issue, uh, and even good politicians who, you know, are about the people often engage in it, rationalizing that, you know, they've got to stay in power in order to do good. And right. so, you know, it, it's a structural, systematic problem as opposed to the fact that, you know, one person is evil. We could put, uh, you know, a Mother Teresa-type character in one of these offices, and within a couple of years they'd be figuring out, how do I draw these lines to maintain power? Well, and, and you've actually identified it really as, as a bipartisan uh, problem. Right. The bipartisan is actually more egregious than the partisan problem, right. where what DeLay did in Texas was to ma- essentially make those districts more competitive, more likely to go Republican, but more competitive. Right. Where here in California, the two parties ganged up to make it non-competitive across the board. And that's a more dangerous situation than, than even the situation in Texas. Yeah, I think that the problem with all of it is it focuses on the political elites as opposed to the people. Right. That the, the central focus here is on how we're going to allocate political power among a handful of of elites as opposed to ensuring that government is about being for the people. Yeah. Well, it, it, and uh, that's what we, we exactly. But it's you know the, on on the other hand, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there because it makes liberals very happy to know. That uh, that Henry Waxman is going to be a congressman for for as long as he wants to be. It makes conservatives very happy to know that um, uh, well, we had Chris Cox here in our district. But whatever will be a congressman for as long as they want to. There's a certain comfort level that you know that when they're in these safe districts that they can more likely propose legislation that you are going to agree with. But you're right; it's a structural issue, and we need to address it. Um, How do we go about doing yeah, that? Yeah, let's no, talk what, about that. What, what's well, the first step? Do you think? Right. Well, I think a, a few things we need to do would be to establish independent commissions to deal with uh, redistricting. And I understand that some re- independent commissions are better than others. I understand, for example, that the proposal that was rejected by Californians, uh, you know, did not reflect the diversity of California, that it would be a, 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 a three-judge panel uh, of retired judges, people who didn't necessarily reflect the, the values and diversity of California. So I understand that some independent commissions right. are not as strong as others, but I do think, in light of the fact that most democracies in the world have independent commissions, we do need to move toward an independent commission system that's large enough so that we can reflect the diversity of a place like California and also has value so we can ensure that the, the districts adequately reflect all of California uh, as opposed to just certain, uh, you know, pockets of California. Yeah, that and that 
proposition, I believe it was proposition seventy eight or seventy nine and it was it was the messenger it wasn 't mm-hmm. the message it was the messenger, and I think that 's why why it went down to defeat it because I do believe that most people are in favor of taking this out of the political process right let 's talk about your involvement with the uh, the Baker Carter or the Carter Baker. Commission well, on... you probably said it the right way the first time. Oh, did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, giving seniority to, I don't know. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so, no, no was, and I say was... that because, as you know, the, the commission proposed a photo ID requirement right. in the polls, and I dissented from the commission's report. Now, on first glance... Well, how uh, did the, I'm sorry. How did the commission come about? Let's, let's go back. Basically, uh, Bob Pastor, he works at American University. He's close to... Jimmy Carter, and there was an earlier commission with Carter and Ford, and so Bob Pastor wanted to put together a similar commission in the aftermath of the 2004 elections, and he went to to President Carter, and they went out to President George Bush, and I guess George Bush uh, suggested that Baker was the man who would co-chair this. So they selected a variety of people, many of them politicians. So there were very few voting rights specialists on the commission, and most of the people had familiarity with elections in the sense they'd run for office. But they really did look at things from the perspective of a candidate as opposed to from the perspective of voters. Is, is that why you were saying you dissented from the well on the vote on the I well know. well that is a primary reason here in terms of the focus. But I, I really don't think that our commission looked at the the data, the empirical data out there. It wasn't based on uh, facts, but maybe based on what they thought they could pass in a Republican Congress. They okay. thought that you know the value of the commission was not necessarily primarily in improving democracy. But by saying, "Hey, we, you know, pa- we we pro- made this proposal and this that was passed came, yeah. by this Congress yeah. uh, here," and, and that 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 I think was the objective. Uh, a photo ID requirement is what they proposed, and it sounds good on its face because the thought is, well, you know, everybody has photo ID, but in fact, there are 20 million Americans who don't have ID. There, it's more people than in Delaware, New Mexico, and 14 other states, uh, and we're already, as I mentioned, low in terms of voter turnout in the United States. It has some disproportionate effects. In Wisconsin, for example, 23% of seniors don't have a photo ID. 78% of young black males ages 18 to 24 don't have an ID. And we compare that to the amount of fraud that's out there. You know, for example, in Ohio, there were only four fraudulent ballots for 9 million cast. It's very likely that we would, you know, we would exclude over a thousand legitimate voters for every one fraudulent vote prevented. Uh, I'm all for photo ID if we show that the fraud prevented is going to be more than the legitimate voters excluded. Right. I'm all for it, but that uh, we need to do that empirical cost-benefit analysis. And, and that's you're you're abs- That's an excellent point because the idea of a fraudulent vote as opposed to somebody who cast the ballot with the with the right with the intent to vote. Uh, being excluded is much much higher than fraudulent voting, and and uh, that that's uh, that's a very good point. And, and you know, people talk about airplanes. Oh, we got an idea at an airplane, but it's it's completely different in the sense that you know, let's stop the thousand legitimate flyers, and if that's going to allow us to stop the one terrorist from blowing up the airplane, that makes perfect sense. But it does not. It's anti-democratic to say we're going to stop a thousand legitimate voters from participating in order to possibly stop one fraudulent voter. I mean, that, that takes us farther away from the will of the people rather than closer to it. Right. I'm going to go partisan on you for a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does seem to me that the Republicans have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out ways, and I'll, this goes back 40 years, 50 years right. even, trying to figure out ways to keep people from voting as opposed to trying to figure out ways to get more people in the process. 
Right. Is that a is that a fair assessment? Well, well, some people would say that by you know putting same-sex marriage initiatives on the uh, the the ballot or prohibitions, <laughs> that they worked hard to get people out to the polls, and that you know well, increased voter turnout has actually helped them. <laughs> well, uh, you could say no. You could say among registered voters, right. uh, among high propensity voters, right. that that yeah, that's certainly the case. But in right. terms of trying to open it up, trying to open it up to uh, uh, former felons, right. trying to open it up to. Uh, all kind of, I mean, there's all sorts of right. people who have been scrubbed from the list. Yeah. It seems to happen more often. I know what you're right. saying. I know. I think you're trying to be a, a, a bit facetious. Yeah, yes. it, but uh, at yeah, the same they, time, I mean, you right. go back to the Voting Rights Act in 1964 right. and all the other stuff that's right. happened since then. And Na- you really Na- have to- Nathan, Nathan and Mike, what, what I do want to say is that even back then, Dixiecrats were the problem back then, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, right. a lot of those folks moved to the Republican Party, <laughs> yeah. but it was Dixiecrats, were, Democrats yeah. from the South, who yeah. worked hard to exclude African-American voters, right. and there were many Republicans and Democrats from the North who worked together to include well, uh, uh, voters here. So, And another reluctance I have in going partisan is that, you know, when you, when you play the partisan card, people think, oh, you're just sour grapes in terms of losing in a couple elections, and there's not really a problem. You're just making up excuses for why you lost and and so my and also frankly i'm not as concerned about political elites like al gore and john Kerry as i'm concerned about average americans yeah. being able to cast a ballot and, and really focusing this on people and citizens and average americans as opposed to political elites so so i understand the point uh... but i i really would just say right. that okay, this fair. is a problem with politicians manipulating rules across the board to maintain power and disenfranchise us, the American people. All right. Well, we're speaking with Spencer Overton, and the book is Stealing Democracy. The website is stealingdemocracy.org. I'm sorry, stealingdemocracy.com. Is Dot the, com. Uh, I'm sorry, stealingdemocracy.com. And the book, as I said, Stealing Democracy, the, vo- uh, the New Politics of Voter Suppression. Why is it we can put a man on the moon and we can't figure out a system where everybody has an opportunity to vote and in, in, in ballots that are secure and safe and reliable. Why is it we cannot do this? Why can't the federal government in a federal election, like for president, impose some kind of a standard across all 50 states? Hey, I would agree with you all. Unfortunately, in this country, your right to vote depends on where you live. We've got four 4,600 different election systems across this country, vast amounts of unequal spending. Just in Columbus, Ohio, on the last election, for example, they knew they needed 5,000 machines. They decided to make do with only 3,000, and they moved some out of urban areas into suburban areas. As a result, Tanya Sivner stood four hours in line, and her mother, who lived in a suburb, only stood in line for 15 minutes. Voters are treated like cattle. Dorothy Turner also voted in Ohio. She's an 80-year-old woman. She stood in line for two and a half hours without anyone offering her a chair. She said that she hung in there despite the fact that her back hurt because she thought it might be her last election. You know, Starbucks and McDonald's would go out of business if they'd had two and a half hour lines or four hour lines. Uh, but, you know, for some reason we continue to do this in part because administ- uh, elections are administered locally. I would say that voting is at least as important as a cup of coffee or a quarter pounder and that we need to do better and that we need some more federal standards and also federal funding to ensure that there's more access. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, I mean, well, go why, ahead. why go ahead. isn't it? 
why, why can't we get that federal funding? What, what's standing in the way? Well, you know, in 2002, uh, HAVA was the first time they gave yeah. any federal funding for local elections, and that was for a few machines in light of the fact that we'd had those problems in 2000. The problem is you've got people who would say, and, and James Baker on the commission repeatedly said this, we don't want to federalize elections, is what he, he, he said. But, oh, wow. you know, in most countries around the world, and almost all of them, um, federal elections are administered by, you know, federal administrators. Why? Because you want some degree of uniformity, uh, because the uniformity allows for equality so that everyone can have the same and equal shot in order to cast a ballot. So we really do fall short of, that's another way we, we fall short of international norms. Yeah, I may be stretching the, the legal um, theory here, but is there, a, there is, is there an equal protection argument to be made against the federal government on this? Well, there certainly was an equal protection argument made in Bush v. Gore. Yes, that, that's what I'm that saying. One. And yeah. the question here is why shouldn't it apply, that same, that same equal protection argument apply to prevent to some of the travesties that, that continue to exist? Yeah, well, and, and I mean, as we know, the Supreme Court said this is a one-off decision, and, right. you know, which was just so cowardly, it's unbelievable. But, right. uh, but the fact is that we, the people, have, a, have, a, have an equal protection case to be made against the federal government for not ensuring that every one of our votes is counts. I, I think that that's right. And so, oh, well, <laughs> and let's get started. <laughs> We're the plaintiffs, okay? Uh, so, uh, and so, yeah, I just, it just seems crazy to me. Um, oh, I forgot where, where was I well, going with that? I uh, have no idea. Yeah. Well, now, give well, us another. Well, one other important thing that's coming up, and a lot of this is at stealingdemocracy.com. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. and I mentioned that just to say, Certainly one can go there to find out more about the book, but it's an activist site that one yes. can use to register to vote and also to write a letter to their congressperson urging them to renew the yeah. Voting Rights Act. Something else that's coming up, as you all know, is this Voting Rights Act. It's been stalled in Congress, yes. and it's, it's a real problem because there's some real protections. So the few protections that we have are, are frankly being eroded because they're being stalled uh, in Congress right now. Is, it, is this a red herring argument that, the, uh, that some of this, uh, people in the Senate, the senators are making that because the South was singled out in the original Voting, Acts right, Voting Rights Act that they're somehow, uh, they want to change the law in order to change that particular Section 5, I believe. Is this a red herring? Are they, are they, do they really want to see a Voting, Acts, uh, Voting Rights Act yeah. out of Congress? I, I think it is definitely a red herring because there's still problems in the South. If you look at yeah. Kilmichael, Mississippi, for example, just in 2001, it had grown to 52 percent black. And three weeks before Election Day, the all-white town council canceled the election uh, because there were some black challengers and they thought they'd lose. In Prairie View, Texas, just in 2004, uh, the district attorney threatened to arrest uh, anyone who voted from a historically black college down there. He claimed that they weren't residents, where that clearly was not the case established by Texas law. And also in that same county, the county board reduced the poll hours from 17 hours down to six hours at the polling place closest to that uh, that college, that historically black college. So we still have real problems. The Voting Rights Act uh, prevents uh, states it, it, it requires that states show that their election changes are not discriminatory. Right. And without that law, 
these instances that I mentioned could have gone on uh, really unchecked. It prevents discriminatory election rules before they're on the books. Right. The Voting Rights Act prevents lawsuits that can cost millions. It's a perfect example of the fact that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 2000 election in Florida peeled back the covers on our electoral process. It should have been a gigantic civics lesson to everybody in America. Unfortunately, we seem to have failed to take that lesson seriously. We need reform. That's why a book like Stealing Democracy, um, you, you've got to check this out. The website is stealingdemocracy.com, uh, The New Politics of Voter Suppression. Uh, Spencer Overton, thank you for being on Weekly Signals. Hey, thank you all so all right. much for having me. Have a fine Fourth of July, yeah. and enjoy your barbecue, too. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. Hey, right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.